0: Before we jump into this episode, we wanted to let you know about a Facebook live stream that will be happening on Saturday, April 18th at 1 p.m. Central. Kimball Cornu will be discussing the Christian art of dying in the time of pandemic. Kimball Cornu is assistant professor of medicine and healthcare ethics at St. Louis University and is a practicing palliative care physician. He was scheduled to teach our Pentecost term course on the Christian art of dying, but we have delayed this course until 2021 due to the coronavirus pandemic. For more information about this event, you can find links and information in the show notes. Welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are wrapping up our series on the genealogies of Scripture with Peter Lighthart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeff Myers. Here they're going to give some final thoughts on the Apostles' discussion of genealogies in the New Testament, as well as how to think about our own genealogies. As always, do check out those show notes for some helpful articles that we released this week as well as a link to our YouTube channel where we release weekly videos on Bible liturgy and culture, and this week we will have several videos out related to Holy Week. With that, we really hope that you enjoyed this discussion, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here is Peter Lighthart, Alistair Roberts, James B. John, and Jeffrey Myers having a final discussion on the genealogies of Scripture.
1: Welcome to the Theopas Podcast. I'm Peter Lighthart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers. Brian Motes, as usual, is keeping us on track, making sure that everything gets properly recorded and edited and out to you, our listening audience. We thank you for listening. We hope these podcasts continue to be an encouragement to you and that uh, they'll be continue to be edifying. Uh, we are coming to the end of our series on the biblical genealogies, which we've been doing for the last couple of months. This will be our last episode on that topic, and uh, we've covered uh, the genealogies From Genesis through the genealogies in the Gospels, which are the genealogies of Jesus. And we've uh, not looked in in enormous detail at every one of those, but we've looked at all of them in in some detail. And uh, this is a summarizing episode trying to draw some conclusions about what the genealogies are doing in the Bible, uh, what we've learned from the studies that we've done together over the last couple of months. And also, we're going to look at some passages in the New Testament where genealogies are diminished in their importance, where Paul warns in a couple of passages against obsession with genealogies, uh, and uh, we want to try to make sense of what that means for us as Christians and how genealogies now have a different place in the life of Christians, as, as different that is in regard to, in contrast to uh, ancient Israel's. Let me begin with a personal anecdote. Uh, we we because we're in the middle of the uh, quarantine for the coronavirus, uh, my family was gathered. Uh, uncharacteristically altogether on a Sunday morning uh, without the the rush of getting ready for church uh, and my my wife was reviewing some of uh, things the things that she's been looking at with her parents on ancestry.com and she decided to plug in my um, my family which uh, didn't have any uh, existence on ancestry.com until she started doing that and she went back a couple of generations and got to a George cook K-O-C-H, and George Cook opened up a whole line of uh, uh, ancestry that went back to the uh, early 18th century. I've always said that my ancestors all came from Germany, but this George Cook took us back to Prague. So I was I was really excited to have a Prague ancestry. And then we started seeing names like Moshe, and then there's another Moshe, uh, and then there's an Isaac, and then there's a Jacob, Uh, and it's clear that the uh, ancestors of the George Cook that we were working with (laughs) were Jewish residents of of Prague. I got very excited that uh, some of my ancestors might actually be buried in the famous uh, Prague Cemetery, um, which is a largely Jewish cemetery. Uh, My wife and I were in Prague a number of years ago, and we walked past the cemetery. If I'd known or suspected that some of my ancestors might be there, I would have stopped in to look for them. And then we also connected with a bunch of Brandeis uh, ancestors, uh, B-R-A-N-D-E-I-S, Brandeis, Louis Brandeis, of course, was a Supreme Court justice of the United States in the middle part of the 20th century. Uh, I found by glancing online that he had he had a Jewish ancestry going back to Prague and to uh, Czech ancestry. And I thought, okay, Cousin Louis, I'm, I'm related to a, a famous Supreme Court justice. Uh, well, later, later in the day, my wife was looking at the the birth dates and everything, and uh, and also looking at some genealogical research that I had done as a college student, and realized that we had the wrong George Cook. <laughs> um, and uh, we the the George Cook we were looking at was not the one that was actually related to us. And so, you know, for half a day, I was thinking I had this very interesting Jewish Czech brandeis connection in my ancestry and you know my the wheels on my mind spinning and uh then you know it's all gone a few hours later when we realized we just had the wrong guy and uh when we got the the right george cook into the genealogy it goes nowhere <laughs> we can't can't trace it back any further than any further than i had known you know uh 40 years ago when i was in college um and had done a, a senior thesis on genealogy. But it, it got me to think, among other things, it got me to thinking about, I'm, I'm interested in my, my family history. I'm, I'm blessed so far as I know to have a family history that goes back uh, as Christians for as, as far back as I can go, which is not that far back, but as far back as I can go, there are Christians, mainly uh, Lutherans, uh, both in Germany and then coming to the States, settling in the Midwest and having Lutheran uh, background there. Uh, but th- I had this i had this sudden surge of, uh, I don't know, delight, it, intrigue, mystery, uh, that this uh, the, a whole new storyline for my family opened up and that was rapidly shut <laughs> uh, when we realized we had the wrong guy. But I haven't had an obsession with Ancestry, but I, re- I realized for a few hours why somebody might have an obsession uh, with Ancestry because of those uh, intriguing connections that you might make with, I don't know, famous people or with... Strange storylines. How, how if if I was related to German uh, Jews, uh, which I'm not apparently, <laughs> but if I were, how did they get to the Czech Republic? Uh, what's the connection? What's what kind of stories are in the background? I had an uh, an inkling of what makes what drives people to have the obsession that many people have with their ancestry uh, uh, in the in the present. It gives you it gives you a sense of not just a sense of roots, but it gave me a sense of mystery and intrigue and just an open ended past that I hadn't thought I had. So, Peter, wait a minute here. Um,
2: you say you're not obsessive, but back in your senior year of college, <laughs> you wrote your senior thesis on genealogies. What was that about? Uh, what this, was the
1: <laughs> this was an assignment from, uh, as a history uh-huh. major in college, okay. everybody, did a, everybody did a family history. So, Noel has a family sure. history. I have a family history, which gave us. Uh, the main way we've used it over the years is as a source for names for our children. All of our children have names that come from one or the other or both sides of our families, which is why our kids all have very strange names.
3: You know what? Maybe we should have done this um, warning episode about genealogies first rather than... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh,
1: I don't know if you, you all have done any kind of work like that, but uh, do, you, do, you have any, do you have any sense of what I'm I'm talking about I had again, I had it for a few hours, and my hopes have been dashed now, but <laughs> but there was hope there what 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 is that about? what is it that drives people to have those kinds of uh, that do have an obsession with it? what drives them
4: as you mentioned when we 're talking about genealogies we 're not just talking about a list of names we 're talking about roots we 're talking about um hidden stories, and when we 're reading the biblical narratives that 's a lot of what 's going on. There are mysterious periods of time that are covered over. With genealogies, that's the record that we have that ties certain times that we have narratives for together. So we think about the line of Christ in Luke. There are long lists of names that we know nothing about. And we may be intrigued thinking about what sort of lives did these people live? Would they anticipate that something of such significance for the history of humanity would emerge from their line of David's family? Um, Or we might think about the ways in which those periods in Egypt between the descent into Egypt of the descendants of Jacob and the time of the Exodus. What happened in the lines that um, provide the intervening period um, within Exodus chapter six? So, the sense of a genealogy as a very condensed story or as a way in which we see a large period of history in a wide-angle lens view, I think it it helps us to understand part of the intrigue of that when we consider our own family histories and the ways in which the destiny of great peoples and our identities can be bound up with those people that have gone before us and also the promise of what might come after us.
2: Uh, Peter, I had a similar experience, and I probably told you about this before, about 25 years ago, 30 years ago, my mother discovered that her father, so my maternal grandfather, uh, had hidden his uh, his roots, his genealogical roots, for all her life. She discovered in one of his, when he, when he was moving, he was getting older and having to move with them and she discovered in one of his chest of drawers some pictures of uh, these uh, babushka kind of women and began asking him questions about who these who these women were and discovered that he was Bulgarian and that he uh, his parents fled from Bulgaria came to um, the United States and he took on a different name. His name was Rokoff, but in the at the mm-hmm. turn of the century, turn of the twentieth century, late 1900s, early uh, to early uh, uh, early nineteen early twentieth century, you if you had that name, you couldn't get a job because there was a lot of xenophobia about Eastern Europeans. Um, and so mm-hmm. he changed his name to Givens. And so he, mm-hmm. my mom, basically lived her life without even knowing what her roots were. And um, when I discovered it, I thought it was fascinating that I had this Bulgarian connection, of course. And my wife said, well, that's why you're so dark-complected and all that other stuff. And that's why you love Mediterranean cuisine. Um, But uh, it it, it really did change kind of the way I thought about myself, my identity, my background, my life. And then when I was able to visit Bulgaria, I don't know, 12 years, 10, 15 years ago, it was uh, it was kind of a fascinating thing to do. So there is some there's something to that, something to the uh, knowing what your roots are and, and having that uh, then build into your identity.
1: Then the question is, um, uh, are we in danger of uh, violating Paul's exhortation? Uh, I'm reading for 1 Timothy 1, where he says to Timothy, "I urge you upon my departure, "...that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration the of God, which is by faith." Uh, Titus 3.9 says something similar. It links uh, obsession with genealogies to disputes about the law and also strife, and says he says that these things are unprofitable and worthless. So in both of those passages, Paul is warning against this obsession with genealogy. And is, are we to take that as a caution against the kind of thing that uh, Jeff has been talking about, I was talking about? Or is something else going on in Paul's letters where the genealogies are, are, are he's, he's, he's attacking something else rather than just an interest in a family past?
4: I think he also warns against the obsession with angels that some people have. And in all of these areas, I think what we're seeing is straying from the main central thoroughfare of Scripture to spend time in these um, uncertain paths through um, unclear terrain. And the more weight that you place upon those things, the more you become someone who's engaged in speculation rather than actual um, meditation upon the revealed things of God. Now, there's a time for this sort of um, reflection upon genealogy and thinking about how that might, in correspondence with the clearly revealed things of God, help us to understand the faith better. But the more weight we place upon those things, um, the more, I think, we've seen some of this today, the way that some people find the myths that surround the Bible far more intriguing and curious than the actual revealed text of Scripture. And likewise, some of the... um, stories about the genealogies and some of the accounts of particular obscure figures. We might think in our own day also of um, stories about the saints um, or the ways in which we have this whole law and um, traditions that surround certain figures that aren't actually scriptural, but which ultimately can usurp the clear revelation of God as they become something that grabs people's attention. And I've seen this particularly in the context of Jewish um, myths and um, extra-canonical stories, deuterocanonical literature. There's been a lot of interest in that in some circles, even evangelical circles, that we can have the story behind the story. And it often can venture into the realm of something nearer to a sort of um, biblical science fiction than actual meditation upon what God has told us. And there, I think, that's where genealogy can be a dangerous um, route into that penumbral realm beyond the realm of clear revelation.
3: I wonder if there's something significant to the timing and the context of the scriptural, canonical context of Paul's statement, and whether he has in in mind the raising the issue of what qualifies us to be members of a priesthood, a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. The last time genealogies are mentioned in the Old Testament is in the context of Ezra and Nehemiah, when after the resettlement, various people have to be excluded or or not admitted into the priesthood because they can't be enrolled properly. Their descendant, uh, their ancestry uh, can't be traced in the genealogical records and 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 so there it, it seems to um be something w- which excludes and then in particularly in jesus ministry and onwards there is this um i don't know if i'd call it a redefinition but a, a uh an examination of the, the um the concept of, of familyhood jesus asks who am i Brothers and, and sisters, and, and uh, relates it to uh, obedience, and, and um, speaks about the need to be born again. And Jesus will sort of continue his seed in the Isaiah fifty three sense on the earth, not in the normal biological way, but through the the gospel. Paul can talk about how he has begotten people, and he's a father to people through the gospel. So I wonder if the Um, placement of Paul's discussions of genealogies uh, alludes to the fact that we are members of God's priesthood in a a different way now, in a a non-biological manner.
2: Well, certainly in the context of Paul's ministry, that has to be his number one concern dealing with uh, Judaizers and those who want to uh, emphasize uh, either genealogical connections or circumcision or old old world laws and taboos, you know, there's a place also, and I had to step out for a minute. Hopefully someone didn't mention this in Philippians three where Paul gives his own genealogy and then says, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's really just a bunch of rubbish because union with Christ is my uh, primary identity. Um, And that seems to be uh, Paul's concern. Seems to be the new Testament's concern, all the genealogies uh, that began and you know, Genesis 5, all the way up through the uh, old, the Hebrew scriptures, they all end. There's no more interest in genealogies after Matthew 1 and Luke 3, um, because now being united to Christ is our primary marker, our identity.
1: Yeah, and the priestly part of it, I think, is crucial, too, as, as James was saying. Um, Hebrews 7 is another New Testament passage that explicitly talks about genealogy, uses the term and Hebrews 7 is all about the uh, contrast between the gene- uh, between the priesthood of Aaron and the priesthood of Jesus. And makes the point uh, that Jesus is not qualified as priest under the order of Aaron. He's from the wrong tribe. He doesn't have the right uh, ancestry in order to be a priest uh, of the order of Aaron. Uh, and that he, the writer of Hebrews characterizes that as a qualification that's a fleshly qualification for priesthood. Um, flesh meaning here, I think, uh, uh, you know, pretty literal biological descent. Instead, Jesus is qualified as by the power of an indestructible life. I believe that's an allusion to the resurrection of Jesus, and that's what qualifies him as priest. And so the contrast is between genealogical qualification and qualification by resurrection for Jesus and Aaron in particular. But that, that fits with the more general point that James was making there's no longer access to priestly privilege or to priestly vocation by virtue of a descent from, a, from an ancestor, uh, but rather it's by sharing in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, I think another way, to, you can think about this another way, I think, which would bring a more genealogical, make the point, but more in a more genealogical vein. By virtue of baptism into union with Christ, we become part of the family of Abraham. Abraham is now our ancestor. And so Paul can write to the Corinthians Many of whom are not Jews, and refer to the fathers, their fathers, uh, passing through the uh, passing through the Red Sea, being baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and that's all part of their heritage. Paul frequently talks about uh, Christians as uh, children or sons of Abraham; they are the, the uh, sons of the Spirit, born not of flesh, but rather by the Spirit. Uh, and so that's a way of making the point by saying instead of. Just canceling out genealogy, we kind of get a different one. Our our father was a wandering Aramean. We can testify that because we're united to the seed of Abraham uh, and uh, share in that heritage. That
3: would in with some of our recent thoughts on Luke, Peter, insofar as um, there Jesus is connected um, to God, um, to Adam, who is in many ways a priestly figure. Um, that comes down to. Jesus, who is baptized um, at at the age of 30, and and I guess you could then see our baptism as Christ, as linking into this whole uh, connection to God and and our consecration as as priests. Mm -hmm.
1: Right.
4: Another aspect is brought out in Titus chapter 3 verse 9, where genealogies are listed along with foolish controversies, dissensions, quarrels about the law and things that are unprofitable and worthless. And there it seems to be that genealogies are provoking division, whether it's in people vaunting their particular pedigree over others, or whether it's the uncertainty of certain genealogies and the questions concerning them, that they're not actually helping people to grow in godliness, they're not edifying in the way that they're being discussed, but they're becoming. distracting and a destructive focus for some people and i wonder whether um the way that there is a shifting of the gravity of our faith away from the things that are the real heart to things that are more peripheral and that seem to serve the purpose primarily of winning arguments over other parties that that is one of the things that is at stake in the concern that paul has about Mm. genealogies
1: yeah, which I, I think would, um, if I could put that into terms that uh, Paul uses in Galatians, that would, in my mind, link obsession with genealogy, that is, obsession with fleshly descent, with fleshliness in the more uh, moral or spiritual sense that Paul uses it in Galatians 5, so the works of the flesh. But uh, I think Paul sees a some kind of connection between an obsession with fleshly genealogies on the one hand, and the kind of strife and division and rivalry that uh, is uh, that is the work of the flesh. Uh, those are those don't just happen to be two different two different places where the word flesh is two different contexts where the word flesh is used. I think Paul sees an interconnection between them. And I
4: wonder whether there's also um, some of Jesus challenged the way that the law has been used by the Pharisees and others um, behind this. That for the Pharisees, their understanding of the law was very much it seems, in Jesus' challenge to them, of the law as a set of diverse, discrete commandments that aren't really connected by an inner logic. Whereas for Jesus, when he's asked the question about what is the greatest commandment of the law, he doesn't just choose one of um, 600 odd commandments. He chooses something that summarizes the um, inner logic of the entire body of the law. So it's not just choosing one part over against the others. Yet, when people have that wrong approach to the law, often they get stuck on um, just the minutiae of the, of the text and don't actually have any sense of the central drive and purpose and how it all hangs together. And so the dissensions about the law, the dissensions about genealogies and the controversies often result from a lack of an understanding of the true integrity and the spirit of god's teaching that this is about justice mercy and faithfulness not just the small secondary matters that shouldn't be neglected but which can easily come to eclipse what really matters and should be central hmm.
2: is is it accurate to say and i'm asking this question i i don't know i don't remember it's been a while since i've looked into this at first century uh judaism uh second temple judaism pharisaism um, and I know there's differences between uh, various uh, schools of thought in first century, but did they, did they tend to connect um, forgiveness, uh, uh, true, being a true child of God, uh, salvation with um, uh, genealogical roots with, um, you know, we might say even racial Kind of connections. I say this because uh, there's a lot in the Gospels about Jesus seeming to contrast uh, the lack of faith in the Jews with the faith of of a centurion or an official or some Gentile. Um, and you know, Jesus saying, for example, in John chapter eight, you know, God can raise up sons of Abraham from these stones, seeming to at least marginalized genealog- genealogies with regard to a proper and true relationship with God, and that being that being connected, obviously, with even in the Hebrew uh, story and the story of Israel, there are lots of converts who came into the faith who are not genealogically related to Abraham uh, at the time of Exodus, and of course we have uh, Ruth uh, in the story of Boaz, all that, uh, but it. That seems to be one of the emphases in the New Testament is to to, uh, either either restore that understanding and then also expand it as Jesus is going to do um, after his death and resurrection.
4: Even looking at something like the genealogy of Luke, there's an almost deflationary effect that it has upon the obsession with genealogies more generally. The names from David onwards are largely unknown, but then it also goes back beyond Abraham. And there's a certain point in our genealogies where you trace things back to a point where everyone has that ancestor. There's nothing particularly special or unique about that figure relative to others. We all are descended from Noah, and so there's nothing special about that. But tracing his genealogy back to Adam um, has a sort of deflationary effect upon that obsession with genealogies and who is that great ancestor in your past.
1: Yeah, that's a great point, Alistair. Um, I was thinking, Jeff, in answer to your question, also, also this. I, I don't remember what sources he cites, but I'm pretty sure that N.T. Wright talks about race uh, as a one of the, I think one of the symbols maybe of uh, of the Jewish worldview. He's got that um, that uh, framework for understanding uh, the Jewish worldview and New Testament of the people of God, and I think race is one of them, along with the temple, the land, and and Sabbath, and some other things.
3: Well, I mean, the the passage that you quoted, um, Jeff, about how Paul um, uh, puts himself forward as, uh, you know, circumcised of of the tribe of Benjamin, he seems to um, uh, include that because it it will mark him out as being a person of particular renown. I mean, this is to show how you know how impressive his um, his ancestry is. So th- there must have been um, a certain amount of pride in in ancestry um, in order for Paul's comments to make sense.
4: It's interesting in the Book of Acts the way that that ancestry is in some ways subverted. The way that Paul is always referred to as Saul before chapter thirteen, and he plays out the role of Saul, the descendant of Benjamin. He's playing out the role of the persecutor of David, and then in chapter 13, you have him played off against Sergius Paulus and um, Elamus the sorcerer. And Elemas suffers the fate in some ways that Saul does, or Paul, as we come to know him, in his conversion. He's blinded and led around for a while because he always makes the straight ways of God crooked in the same way as Saul was led to the street called Straight, And then later on, it talks about, in that same chapter, the way that Saul, King Saul, was replaced by David. And in the, that same way, Saul starts to take on characteristics of David. He's no longer the persecutor of the son of David. He's one who's let down through the window, like David was let down through the window by Michael. And I wonder whether there's some subversion of that genealogy there, that it's brought up and he's characterised as a descendant of Benjamin, but characterised in a way that ultimately shows that he loses that character in part as he comes to be associated with the the true son of David, Jesus Christ.
3: I think that's right. I think that in the Old Testament there's this interesting way in which David seems to take on and fulfill various Benjamite um, prophecies and aspects. He, he defeats uh, an enemy with a sling, which is a Benjamite um, weapon. He, he um, names Solomon, um, for instance, the alternative name um, Idid-Yah, which is part of the, um, uh, the prophecy in Deuteronomy 33 that Moses gives about um benjamin being the the beloved of of yahweh and, and there are various ways in which david fulfills those benjamite things and then in the new testament um it's it's the other way around and so as, as you say um alistair there is paul becoming david like um in in when he escapes lowered uh, in a basket actually through a um through a window out of a city. And then various phrases are used, just as David is said to go in and out before Israel in the Old Testament, um, Paul is said to go in and out among the people of Jerusalem. And just as um, uh, David arouses the jealousy of of Saul in the Old Testament, um, Paul arouses the the jealousy of of the Jews in the New Testament. So there is that sort of uh, interplay between the characters.
2: It's not too hard to imagine an alternate history where Jesus appoints twelve apostles and they become new patriarchs and then um, you know, marry and uh, give birth, and you have a new tribal system with patriarchal genealogies. And yet, uh, although Jesus is concerned that there' be twelve, that just doesn't happen. In fact, there's no there's no uh, emphasis in the New Testament on being related in any sense, on the importance of being related in any sense to one of the 12 apostles, precisely the opposite. Paul is constantly downplaying that and warning against attaching yourself too strongly to to one of these 12, and that also seems to be a subversion of what the the Jews are used to with their tribal identities. Mm -hmm.
1: But it sounds like um, what uh, James and Alistair were saying, the, the pattern you're identifying could be summarized this way, that you have these distinct tribal identities in the Old Testament, and they're distinguished, but even within the Old Testament, you already have this kind of merging of different identities, or one identity merging into another, uh, so you have these, this interesting anticipation of uh, the phenomenon of the of the new covenant that's already there in the way that the the lines get blurred. The lines are drawn clearly in order to be uh, blurred and uh, overturned later.
3: I was just going to say, when we looked at 1 Chronicles 6 and we saw the priestly genealogy there, um, it is headed up in, I think it's probably verse 15 or, or 16, by these 12 um, Levitical leaders, there are 12 clan leaders who are set forth there and that happens quite commonly but it's been gone away from the idea of 12 genealogical lines so in when Ezra um, and the people resettle after the exile, uh, again 12 uh, leaders uh, are set out but they're not obviously from the 12 different tribes and then as Jeff says the same is true um, uh, of the Apostles, so there is the the symbolism of, of the tribalness and, and and so forth, but it's it's disassociated from the ethnic distinction.
1: Yeah, good point. Uh, maybe I could close the the whole series by um, kind of kind of playing uh, schoolmaster and ask each of you what you learned. What stood out about our discussions of genealogy? It doesn't have to be something that you had never thought of before, but what what kinds of things are st- standing out at the end of our series?
4: For me, it's the importance of genealogies as theology. That a genealogy is not just a list of names; it's a theological frame within which to understand certain characters and events and periods of history.
2: Yes, I was going to say something similar. Just. To- the complexity, the intricacy, the, uh, the hidden depths in these genealogies that I think most Christians don't even imagine to be there because it's one of the boring parts of the Bible. Part of it, of course, is just our modern way of reading literature. We don't, we don't take the time to investigate these, uh, these numerical uh, devices or the literary structures But I've just been amazed, mostly listening to you guys and hearing you uh, piece together the the theology, or uh, not piece together, but just draw out the theology and implications that are found in these lists of names. It's pretty amazing.
3: Yeah, very similar for me It's the careful construction of the genealogies which have come out to me. The names are important. The structures are important whether the people are aged, whether their ages are, are recorded there, um, how many people are listed is significant. I've, after we went for it, I went back over some of the genealogies in Chronicles and saw all sorts of ways in which the temple is pictured in human terms in the genealogies of the Chronicles, which I found fascinating to look back on. And and, and just the general importance of it. It's interesting that you mentioned the Hebrew 7 passage peter and uh there the uh when melchizedek is discussed an exegetical point is made on the basis of the fact he has no genealogy recorded in scripture which is quite remarkable really so um there is it is clearly given significance um in the in the new testament even
1: well, I, I I agree with all that. Uh, I guess the thing that I most appreciated and enjoyed about uh, the whole series was having James along. Thanks, James, for uh, joining in. It's uh, it's been a huge blessing for us. You've uh, definitely livened up our conversations and uh, made the made made the rest of us sound um, uh, marginally more intelligent than we actually are, probably. So, um, thanks to all of you. Uh, thanks, especially to James, for joining us and. Uh, We'll be starting a new uh, podcast series uh, next week, and uh, please keep listening. Can I
3: point out that the idea of my contributions making other people seem more intelligent could be interpreted in in two ways.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast.